Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. So last week we began a series looking through through the book of Joel. And of course, we, we saw some facts about the book of Joel. Of course, number one, Joel is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Now, the, the minor prophets are not called minor prophets because they're less important than everyone else. Uh, they are called the minor prophets because they come after major prophecies like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And these major prophecies prophesy mostly about the end of the world and, and big events like that, while the minor prophets, of course, they were smaller. They were not nearly as long as the books of Daniel and Ezekiel and all these things, but they, they more focused on the judgment of God on the immediate sin of Israel. So the minor prophets speak of the judgment of God on sin, but they also speak about the mercy of God. They also speak about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the, the mercy that they promise. The forgiveness that they speak of only comes to those believers who show true repentance to their Heavenly Father. And so Joel, of course, we saw last week, he begins his, his book by talking about a recent locust plague. We don't know when Joel's written. He doesn't give any time, time uh, clues. He doesn't name a king. He doesn't talk about different events. And so we don't really know exactly when it was written, but we know when it was written, it was right after a devastating locust plague that had come through the nation of Israel. And the plague had devastated the land. The plague, locust plague had come in four stages, and it destroyed everything in Israel. It destroyed, of course, the crops. And, you know, locust swarms can eat 20,000 pounds of food a day. And so you have four of them coming through. They're going to destroy everything. And so the first wave came through, and it destroyed all the crops, destroyed the wheat, destroyed the grape harvest, destroyed the orchards and the olive harvest, just destroyed everything that was there. And then the second locust plague came through, the second wave, and they destroyed uh, the trees, they, they stripped the bark off the trees and they, they chewed down the, the grain to the very, st the very stump of the ground and just ravaged the, the pine, the vine, uh, the grapevines and everything else. And then the fourth, third plague came through and took everything that was left and started eating the seeds that were in the ground so that nothing would grow next year. And then the fourth plague came through and they actually got into the silos and the bins and ate all the grass and ate all the stuff that had been stored up. And so by the time this locust plague is finished, there is literally nothing to eat in Israel. The trees are dead. They're bare, but the bark's been stripped off of them, so they're, gonna, so they're dead now. They can't produce any more fruit. The, the grapevines have been destroyed as well. They're, they're stripped bare too, so they're not going to produce any more grapes. They're dying. The grass has been eaten, so now not only are the people starving, but the animals have nothing to eat, so the animals are starving. 
And so it's just a devastating time in the nation of Judah. And so there was nothing for the, the people to eat. There was nothing for the animals to eat. So this plague led to a nationwide famine. And so poverty and starvation became commonplace. It became just a regular part of life. The, the fields wouldn't grow anymore. It was a terrible situation. Now, when Joel's writing, they're starting to recover. The fields are starting to produce again. The trees are starting to produce again. They've planted new things, and they're starting to, to come back to life. And, and life is getting better. And because life is getting better, the people were beginning to grow code on God again. And Joel's reminding them, the last time this happened, God sent the plague. The last time this happened, God destroyed everything we had to eat, and we, we barely survived, and it was a terrible situation. And so Joel reminds them that this famine, this plague, it wasn't a random hardship. It was the judgment of God. It was God judging the sin of Judah. And he doesn't name a specific sin. It wasn't God judging idol worship or God judging human sacrifice or anything like that. He says God was judging your apathy. God was judging your heart toward God because the nation of Judah had their heart on themselves. They weren't living in wicked sin. They were going through the motion that they were supposed to go through. They were still going to temple. They were still memorizing the scripture they had to memorize. They were still doing the yearly sacrifices. They were still doing everything they were supposed to be doing, but their heart wasn't in it. Their heart wasn't on God. They were living a self-centered, selfish life instead of serving God. They had grown cold on God. And so they were lukewarm in their relationship with God. And so God sent judgment to bring them back. God sent this locust plague to devastate the land, to judge their sin, to bring them to a point of repentance. And as we saw last week, you know, God doesn't do these things out of wrath to destroy his children. God didn't send the locust plague because he wanted to hurt Israel. He didn't want to make them suffer and send them pain. He did it to correct them. He did it to bring them to a point where they would come back to him. God sends judgment to correct us, to bring us back to him, to bring us to a point where we see our need of repentance and we see our need for him. And so God sends judgment to restore us. God sends judgment to bring us back into fellowship. But Joel teaches us that even in these times of judgment that God will send to our lives. See, we need to understand this. I know we're studying the book of Joel and it's a minor prophet and it's the Old Testament. We think, oh, well, that's how God worked then. God's not going to send the locust plague to us now. He might, he probably won't, but God still judges us today. God still sends judgment into our life. It may not come in the form of a locust plague, but it may come in the form of an illness. It may come in the form of a lost job. It may come in the form of a trial. And again, you've got to be careful that every time someone goes through a trial, you're not looking at them saying, oh, God's judging their sin. That's not always the case, but that's how God judges us. 
He sends pain to bring us back to him, to make us realize our need for him. But when he sends this judgment, when he sends this pain, there's hope. Because God does it to bring us back. And so this morning we're going to look at chapter 2 and we're going to see Joel's promise that it is never too late to turn back to God. So look at Joel chapter 2 starting in verse number 12. The Bible says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. <coughs> so God uses Joel to call his people to repent, to turn from their sin, to turn from their lukewarm lifestyle, and to turn back to God. Now, in Christian circles, repentance is a very, con very confused term. There's a lot of people out there that teach different things, wrong things about what true repentance is. And, and so a lot of people, especially you, you get a little away from sort of the more fundamental beliefs. It's like, you know, repentance is a bad thing and it's kind of shamed on and we don't really want to talk about that. But repentance is a vitally important subject in the scriptures. Now, there are those that think repentance is apologizing for all your sins. I've heard people, people preach that if you, need, if you seek salvation, you have to have true repentance. They would explain true repentance is coming to an altar and apologizing to God for all your sins that you've ever committed. Well, then I'm doomed because I can't remember every sin I've ever committed. I don't remember every sin I committed today. But I know I've committed some. And so, but people say, oh, if repentance is going to God and apologizing to God for every sin you've ever committed. That's not repentance. Look, that's not even confession. Saying you're sorry is not a confession. You know, there's a lot of, on TVs and movies, there's a lot of these crime dramas. And, you know, whenever the detectives have a suspect, they bring them into the interrogation room, and, man, they shine a light on them. And they're going through all the facts, like, we know you did it, just confess. And the killer never just says, oh, okay, I'll confess, I'm sorry. Oh, we got a confession. Saying you're sorry is not a confession. A confession is admitting what you have done and admitting that what you did was wrong. And that's what God wants. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the word confess, it's the same word we get homogenized from in our English. It means to agree together. It is you going to God and saying, God, this is what I did. You say it's wrong, and I agree with you. You are right. I am wrong. I have sinned. And so repentance isn't just saying you're sorry. Confession isn't even saying you're sorry. Confession is agreeing with God that you have violated his holiness, that you are wrong, and he is right. What we do when we apologize for something, when we apologize, what we're really doing is we're saying, I'm sorry I got caught. That's what typical apologies are. You do something wrong. Someone calls you on it, you have suffered punishment for it, and I'm sorry that I got caught for this. I'm sorry I got caught breaking the rules and now I have to suffer the consequences for it. I'm sorry that I did this and you found out about it. But God wants true confession and true repentance. Repentance is admitting your sin, confessing your sin, 
and turning from your sin. And a lot of us, we're good at admitting it. We're good at confessing it. We sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us. We'll come to an altar, we'll go to our prayer closet, we'll stop what we're doing and we'll confess our sin. God, I sinned against you, I did this. I'm so, Lord, can I confess my sin for you? Because when we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, we'll confess, but then we don't do anything to turn from that sin we just committed. And we find ourselves doing the same thing over and over and over again. And we get tired of going to God and confessing to God the exact same sin day after day after day after day. I know you've done it because I've done it. Where you find yourself, God, here I am again. I did the exact same thing. I just confessed yesterday, God. Lord, I confess it again. And then two days later, God, it's me again. I know I confessed it Tuesday, but then it's just Friday. But guess what? I did it again. I confess my sin. Forgive me and cleanse me. And we continue. We call, we call them besetting sins. If we're really liberal, they're bad habits. If we really don't love God, it's just how I am. But it's this one thing that we, we just wish we could stop doing it. And how come we never stop doing it? Because we don't really repent. We'll admit it. We'll confess it. But we don't turn from it. We don't turn from that sin and turn back towards God. We don't do anything to set up boundaries so we don't do that sin anymore. And so we're constantly confessing, constantly confessing, and that's not what God wants. God doesn't, God is faithful to forgive us every time we confess our sin, no matter how many times we confess it, but he wants us to stop doing it. He wants us to confess it and repent of it. He wants true confession and true repentance. And repentance is an action. It is taking steps to avoid the sin that you just confessed to God. It is to remove the sin and take steps towards walking with your heavenly Father. It's what Jesus was talking about when he, he says, you know, pluck out. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Because it's better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell with, you know, two full eyes. If your, your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to walk with God with one hand and look like Captain Hook than walk away from God with two perfect working hands that just leads you into sin. It is an action. It is taking steps to stop doing that sin, whatever. You say, well, does God really want me to plug my eyes out? If that's what it takes. Now, don't anyone go home and gouge your eye out and say, preacher told me to do it. But, you know, some of you may want to go home and get rid of your computer. Get rid of your cell phone. Get rid of that relationship that's leading you to sin. It is action. It is taking steps to avoid the sin. And that is what God is wanting from Israel in the book of Joel. He is wanting them to turn from their lukewarm religious ways and turn their whole hearts to him and walk in fellowship with him. So he asks them to fast, to weep, to mourn over their sin, to mourn over the consequences of their sin. Not the plague. He's not saying you should mourn because the plague came through and wiped out all of your crops. He goes, no, no, no. mourn that your sin broke your fellowship with your heavenly Father. Mourn that your sin has separated you from God. The people had become so complacent so apathetic in their walk with God that sin 
didn't bother them anymore. Whenever we get to the place in our life where sin doesn't bother us, whether it's our sin or someone else's sin, where it doesn't convict, convict us, we need repentance. We need to come to a place of repentance. And Joel is telling us that no matter how far we have gone away from God, as a child of God, it's never too late to turn back. So let's see a few things this morning. Number one, when should we turn to God? When should we turn to God? Well, again, in verse number 12, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't God saying, you know what, it might be a good idea if you stop sinning and turn back to me. No, God said, now turn back to me. It is a command that he is giving us. He is commanding us. We find ourselves living in sin. And maybe, look, maybe you're here this morning. You're like, I'm not living in sin. I don't have any wicked sin. I'm not hooked on pornography. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not doing any of these wicked, horrible things. I'm not a serial killer or a murderer. I'm not doing any of those wicked things. Fine. Maybe you're not living in what we would call deep sin. But maybe you're lukewarm in your walk with God, which is just a serious sin in the eyes of God. So maybe you're here, and so this isn't a suggestion, but God is telling us when we find ourselves living in sin, when we find ourselves living for ourselves, separated from God, and not really caring about God, and just kind of going through the motions of our walk with God, we are commanded to turn back to Him. So when should we turn back to God? Well, the, the simple answer is when should you turn back to God? Whenever you're not facing Him. Whenever you're drifting from Him. Whenever you find yourself cold to him, we need to turn back to God. The word turn is the Hebrew word shuv, and it means to return and be restored to a previous place of safety and blessing. The problem that we run into here is most of us feel like we're facing God. Most of us feel like we're walking with God, but we're not. We think we're on fire for God, or we're good enough, but we're actually lukewarm. You know, the nation of Israel, they thought they were facing God, because they weren't, again, they weren't worshiping idols. They weren't sacrificing their kids like other generations had done. I mean, God sent the Philistines and all these other nations to invade Israel because they were worshiping false gods and sacrificing kids. We're not doing that. We're not worshiping false gods. We're not sacrificing our kids. We're just... We're just, eh. So we're okay. The priests thought they were facing God. They thought they were good, but they weren't. Their heart had grown cold, and they had become complacent in their walk with God, and they were turned from God. So every one of us here, and I know you're in church on Sunday morning. You're good. Most of us here think we're pretty good Christians. We're walking with God. I mean, we're in church on Sunday morning. We're listening to this guy yell at us for an hour. Not an hour, I promise. But we're listening to this guy fuss at us and talk about the book of Joel. I mean, the book of Joel. Who preaches through the book of Joel, for goodness sakes? And we're listening to it. So, man, we're great. We're on fire with God. But there are some things you can look at to examine your heart because we all have to examine our heart and say, God, where do I, am, am I right with you? 
Is there anything in my life that's keeping me from you? Is there, is there any complacency in my life? There are some things we can look at. There are some warning signs that you can see to tell if your heart has grown cold towards God. But what are they? Well, here's one of them. If you spend little to no time throughout the week reading your Bible and praying to God. If the only scripture you get is Sunday morning, the only time you pray to God is when we pray as a church, your heart's growing cold towards God. Because the Bible says that the word of God is our daily bread. Now look, none of you eat just on Sunday, physically. None of you say, I'm going to go, to, I'm going to go home, I'm going to cook a huge meal, and I'm going to just stuff myself on Sunday. That's going to get me through the week. No, it'll get you through Monday. I mean, even Thanksgiving. You know, I love Thanksgiving because it is just, it is, it's the only time I say, God, you give us a pass on gluttony. It's time to eat in such a fashion that third world countries are disgusted by what we do. So we eat the turkey, we eat the ham, the broccoli casserole. We just, I eat so much, I feel like if someone touches me, I'm going to explode. Like, oh, I can never eat another bite. But then I watch a football game. About half the time I think, I could use some more pie. <laughs> and I get some more pie. And I wake up Monday, the next day, and you know what I do? I make me some breakfast. Because that one huge meal is never going to get me through. So if you're like, I, can, I, can, I get enough God on Sunday to last me through the week. You don't get enough God on Sunday to last you through Sunday afternoon. So if, you, if you're not faithfully in your word of God, if you're not faithfully praying to your heavenly Father, you are growing cold on God. Here's another one. If the story of the gospel doesn't affect you like it used to, or you don't get excited over people getting saved. If people getting saved, we say, hey, we had you know, eight in vacation Bible school get saved, and you're like, eh, that's nice. Eh, good for them. That's a sign of a heart that's grown cold towards God. Or if you can hear someone read the gospel story, what Jesus Christ went through for you, how he was beaten for you, he was scourged for you, his flesh was ripped off of his bones for you, he was spit on for you, he was nailed to a cross for you, he was hung between heaven and earth and ridiculed and mocked for you, he died for you, was buried for you, and three days later rose again for you. If that doesn't get your heart stirring, you need to Check your relationship with God. You're growing cold towards your heavenly Father. Here's another one. You avoid spending time fellowshipping with other believers. You come to church. You slip in just in time for the, the singing to start. If you're lucky, you get here after fellowship because then you don't got to shake hands. So you're slipping after fellowship, and during the altar call, you slip on out because you're just, I'm going to hear the message and go home. We have fellowships. You don't come. We have work days, you don't come. And it's not because you don't want to work, you just don't want to be around other believers. We have Bible studies, you don't come. You spend as little time with the family of God as you can, you're growing cold in your walk with God. Because when you're close to God, you want to spend time with God's family. Now look, I understand God's family. They can be annoying. I get it. They can get on your nerves. I feel your pain. But they encourage us. They strengthen us. They bless us. 
They help us. We need each other. And if you spend time avoiding other believers, your heart's grown cold to God. Maybe another one is the sins that used to bother you don't bother you anymore. Maybe it's sin in your life. Maybe it's sin on what you're watching on television. You know, you used to watch TV shows, and if they took the Lord's name in vain, you'd, oh, I can't, I can't watch this show and turn it off. And now you're like, well, I wish they wouldn't say it, but man, it sure is funny. I should like this show. I wish they wouldn't have all these, you know, un, these gratuitous sex scenes, but man, it's just, it's a great storyline. And you, you start making excuses for sins that used to bother you, that used to make you want to turn off the TV or change a channel or leave that for, you know, those friends that used to tell dirty jokes and you would, not, you would avoid them. And you're like, well, it's dirty, but man, it's kind of funny. When sin doesn't bother you anymore, your heart's growing cold towards God. Here's another one. You ignore the prick of the Holy Spirit in your heart. When you do sin, the Holy Spirit pricks your heart. You sin and the convic- you get that little conviction of the Holy Spirit saying you shouldn't do that. When you're cold to God and you hear that little prick, you think, oh, I'll take care of it later. I'm going to ignore that. Because here's a, here's a secret you need to know. If you ignore it long enough, he stops doing it. That's not a good thing, by the way. It's not like I'm saying, hey, if you sin enough and ignore God enough, eventually God will leave you alone and you can do whatever you want to do. That's a sad place to be when you can sin and the Holy Spirit says his, his conscience is seared so much, I can't even help him anymore. So when you feel that prick and you ignore it, that's a danger sign. Maybe you make excuses for your sin to try to justify them. Well, you know, I'm not really committing adultery. I'm just looking at pictures. We're not really having sex. We're just talking dirty on the phone. You're justifying your sin because you're cold to God. So if any of these apply to you, then you are drifting from God. You're not walking towards him. You're drifting from him. And it's time to turn back. So that brings us to the second question, number two. How do we turn back to God? Look at verse number 12 again. <clears throat> Therefore, also now saith the Lord, turn ye to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Now this isn't... I'm not going to give you a point, okay, well, first of all, you fast, and this is what you do to fast. And it's, not a, it's not a ceremony you go through. This isn't a four-step plan to get back to God. It isn't a prayer that you pray. It isn't some motion you go through. We have to turn to God with all of our hearts. It isn't something you can fake. Now, what Joel lists here, the, the mourning, the, uh, look again, he goes, uh, with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. See, the fasting and the mourning and the weeping and the ripping their clothes, those were outward signs that Israeli uh, Jews would go through to show their repentance to God or to show their sorrow over something that happened. They would, they would go through it, they would fast and they would, would weep and mourn and go through the motions of that and there were prayers, they would pray to do it and then they would rip their clothes and it showed how sorry they were they did it when they had to get back to God. They did it often when they had lost a loved one. It was a way of mourning and showing how sorry you were. And so when Joel says, hey, you know, you need to fast, you need to mourn, you need to weep. But then he goes, you need to rend your hearts and not your garments. He's going to, it's not a motion, it's not a show you go through. It's not a procedure. You need to have a true heart, a desire 
to come back to God. We have to turn to God with all our hearts. So first we have to want to turn back to God. We have to feel true remorse over what our sin has done to God. True sorrow about how our relationship with God is broken. So if you're here and you're like, you know what, I just don't feel that bad about it. You're not ready to rend your heart, not your clothes. You have had a true desire to get back to God. It's not something you can go halfway. Because look, I'll be honest with you. I have a desire to want to lose weight, but not really. I have a desire to have the desire. I wish I really wanted to. I say I do every month. You know, tomorrow morning starts a new diet because it's Monday, right? But then Monday night comes and we still have chips in the house because we had a reunion this week and, you know, I'm going to get hungry late at night and there's cereal in the You know, the best snack in the world is cereal at night. And not, not grape nuts, like honeycomb. The good stuff. You, you know, midnight, a bowl of cereal, it's a good thing. So I wish I could not do that, but I love them things. So it's not a man. I wish I really wanted to get right with God. It is I have to get back to my Heavenly Father. I have to have that relationship back. I am nothing without him. So God tells us what turning our whole heart looks like. It looks like fasting and weeping and mourning and rending your heart. And all these things are what the Jews would do during times of great loss. But again, instead of tearing their hearts, they tear their clothes. It was an outward sign of sorrow and loss and mourning. And God doesn't want outward signs. God wants repentance. It's easy to show that we are repentant on the outside, to put on a show to impress someone, to get out of trouble for something that we've done. But God wants true heart repentance. He wants us to fast to get back there. And look, there's a lot of different teachings on fasting. And I've, I've, you know, people think, oh, if I fast, I'm just going to skip a meal for a day. You can fast by skipping meals. A lot of the Jews did that. But here's the thing. If you fast and you skip a meal but spend that meal time watching Netflix, you're not fasting. It is giving up something to spend time with God. So if it's a meal, you skip meal time to spend time with God. Not to catch up on your email. Not to catch up on the news. But to, I'm going to deny myself something I need, something I enjoy, something I want, because what I really need, what I really want, is to spend time with God. So you can fast from you can fast from, you can fast from technology. So I'm going to instead of after dinner, instead of watching Netflix, I'm going to turn off the TV, turn off the computer, turn off the the tablet. I'm going to spend time reading my Bible and praying because, yeah, I enjoy relaxing during the end of the day because I had a hard day and my head's spinning. I need to relax and just chill out. I, I enjoy that, but I need God. It is truly saying I need to give up something to see God. He wants us to weep over what our sin did to him. You know what your sin did to God? Your sin hung him on the cross. Your sin had the Roman soldiers nail his arms and his, hand, his legs to the cross. Your sin is what got him scourged. Your sin is what, you know, we like to read the gospel story and say, oh, the Romans killed him. No, they didn't. I did. 
My sin separated Jesus Christ from God the Father because God took my sin and put it on His Son so that He could die for my sins. That's why when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because my sin was on Him, and for that brief time, God couldn't fellowship with Jesus because of my sin. My sin did that. My sin caused Him to die. My sins what sent to the grave. And my sin is what he rose three days later to redeem me from. My sin did that to him. But you also need to mourn of what your sin does to your relationship with your heavenly father. Because Jesus died for my sin, but when I have sin in my life, I can't fellowship with him. He can't hear me. That relationship is broken. And God wants true heart change. Look, you can fool people. You can fool your spouse. You can fool your kids. You can fool your, co- fool, your co- fool your co-workers. You can fool your church members to make you think you've done. You can even fool your pastor. Think, man, that guy's turned a corner. But you can't fool God. Because God sees your heart. So God says, I don't want you to go through the motions. I want you to truly repent for what you've done and for what your relationship with me is. And I want you to truly turn your heart Back to me. You, know, you can fast with the wrong intentions. You can mourn in front of people and go through the motions with no real change. You can fool the world, but you can't fool God. You must turn your whole heart to God. But first of all, you have to want to turn back to God. You have to want to give up your sin. You have to want to stop living a lukewarm Christian life. And until you get to the point where you really want to change, where you really want to be different, you're never going to repent. So we need to get to that point. And God will continue to send judgment to get you to the point where you want to be different. To get you to the point where you want to talk with Him and walk with Him. So that's how we turn to God. Letter to number three. <clears throat> Why should we turn to God? Besides the obvious of not facing judgment, look at verse number 13 again. And rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him. Of the evil. So Joel gives some incredible reasons for us to turn back to God, which to me, it's, it's amazing that he even has to give reasons. I mean, it should be turned back to God. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's what we should do. We're believers. He saved us. He died for us, buried for us, rose again to redeem us. He did all that for us. We should want to walk with him. But Joel says, if that's not good enough, I got some more for you. He is gracious and merciful. God promises to respond to judgment correctly. God promises that if we respond to judgment correctly and turn back to him, we find grace and we find mercy. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. And mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. We don't deserve his forgiveness. But if we turn back to him, we receive it. We don't deserve the, the we don't deserve his love, but he gives it to us anyway. We don't deserve to be able to come into his presence, but if we turn back to him, we can. We deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. We deserve destruction. We deserve hell, 
but his mercy keeps all that from us. Job says, turn back to God because no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've drifted, no matter how cold you've gotten, when you turn back to God, you find grace, you find mercy. Another reason is because he is slow to anger and of great kindness. You know, there's this idea in our culture of, of God as this angry deity who is just waiting for us to mess up so he can send a lightning bolt down and just destroy us immediately. He's just, he's just ready to strike, but, but that isn't God. He's slow to anger over our rebellion. He's slow to punish us for our rebellion. He gives us plenty of time. And here's why. He gives us plenty of time to come back to him. I mean, think about the book of Joel. Israel had just experienced this. They'd they'd had a terrible, devastating plague, wiped out all the animals, wiped out all the fruits and vegetables. There was nothing to eat. It was terrible. They had just survived a horrible time, but they survived because God was giving them more time to turn back to him because he is slow to anger and of great kindness. He was giving them time to repent, to get right, and he was doing all of it out of his kindness. So look, if you're here today, it's not too late to turn back to God. You have, if you're alive and breathing, you still have time because God in his kindness and God in his slow to anger is giving you time to get back to him. And here's another reason Job gives us, because he repents of the evil. Here's, here's a good way of saying of what Joel's saying here. It hurts him more than it hurts us. Your parents ever tell you that right before they beat the fire out of you? Look, my, if your parents did, praise the Lord, mine never did. Mine were like, this is going to hurt. And it's going to hurt you, and I don't care. So, you know, if your parents are like, it's going to hurt me more than... They're good parents. Because, look, I do that. I understand. I don't enjoy punishing my kids. I don't enjoy taking things from them and, and making them. I don't enjoy doing it. I have to do it because I love them and because I don't want them to grow up to be monsters who are just a drain on society. I want them to grow up to be good, God-fearing, productive members of society who will one day earn a lot of money and take care of me. So out of love, I have to punish them, but I don't enjoy it. And that's what Joel's saying. Joel's saying, yeah, God judges you. Yeah, God punishes you. But he doesn't like doing it. He doesn't enjoy doing it. He doesn't enjoy watching us suffer. He does it out of love. He does it to bring us back to him. But even though it hurts him, even though he doesn't want to, he does it because of his desire to fellowship with him. So we should turn back to God because for the believer, a close relationship with God is the safest and most joyful place to be. Being far from God brings pain. It brings judgment. It brings danger, which is why God works so hard to bring us back to him. You know, too many of us here this morning, we're in the same situation as Israel. We are drifting from God and don't even realize it. Because we're going through the motions. 
we're checking the boxes, we're in church, we're doing what we're supposed to do, but we're drifting from God and don't even realize it. And God loves us too much to let us drift. He works to bring us back to him. He works to bring us to a place of repentance. So when you find yourself drifting from God, you need to make the decision to get back to him, to repent of your sin, to turn from what you were following and turn back to God. And let's just be honest, it's not easy. It requires honest brokenness over our, what our sin did to Jesus and a true repentance and desire to get back to him. But when we make that decision, God has grace, God has mercy, and God has love waiting for us.